Philippians, right? Are you all there? Now, I, I like to go through books of the Bible. That's my thing, because there's stuff I would just never talk about if I wasn't forced to. You know, I have better ideas. It's, I'm, I'm talking about Bible stuff. And today is one of the things I'd probably never teach on if I didn't have to. And it's here for a reason. And it's really surprising to me that this is even in the Bible. We're in Philippians 4. What if, you know, they say your greatest strength is also your, often your greatest weakness. And so, too, one of the main reasons people like our church is the wonderful fellowship that we enjoy. But it's also true that one of the main reasons people leave our church is when the wonderful fellowship ceases to be so wonderful. Uh, the Bible says in the multitude of words, transgression is not lacking. You see, so it's just a matter of time when you fellowship with people till you offend or are offended. Right. And so that has led one wag to write a poem to dwell above with the saints we love. Oh, that would be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know. Well, that's another story. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So we're going to look at two women who couldn't get along in Philippians chapter four. And, you know, the early church wasn't perfect. So in that sense, we're a lot like the early church. And you remember the music man? He says, we got trouble right here in River City with a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and this stands for people. It's going to stand for people, all right? So look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Paul makes a public appeal to these two women. So Matthew, on the front row, I'm going to get you to read it for us. Two and three. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So the public appeal is appeal. What does he want them to do? Agree in the Lord. Lord. Ephesians chapter four, verse three says, maintain the unity of the spirit and a bond of peace. Now, we don't know what the feud was about. But what he's asking them to do is in keeping with something he's already written to this church. If you would turn back to chapter two, verse one, he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any infection and sympathy, do what? Make my joy complete by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, directly related to that, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if these women evidently were having a hard time doing that, And so he has to go public calling them out. Now, how would you like to be known throughout eternity as one of the two women who couldn't get along with another? And that's that's all we know about these two ladies. I mean, what you read right here. Now, normally it would be a sin just to go public with somebody's dirty laundry like that. But obviously their feud was public. And so for him to say something about it publicly was not inappropriate. 
Paul had his own troubles with that. Uh, you might remember uh, in Acts, it says, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we have proclaimed the word of the Lord. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them. See, he he fizzled out early. He left them and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed. So there we go. So he he's been through the same thing these women were going through. Did you know that one of the major reasons missionaries leave the mission field is not because of persecution. It's not because of lack of funding. It's because they can't get along with other missionaries. How about that? So it's just the way it is. Now, it seems to me that when you look at why we disagree with each other, probably with these women, it's one of just a few things. Number one, sometimes it's a personal wrong has been committed. In other words, somebody did something against you or you did something to somebody else and you or them are offended. Okay, that's that's one reason. That happens a lot. Another is just personality clash. Okay, that guy just rubs you the wrong way and he just gets on your nerves. Okay, that's another one. Third is differences in methodology. Now, you don't like the way they're approaching ministry. Now, with me, there's a lot of Christians that do things, it's, well, I call it gimmicks or pragmatism. They think if they can just be nice enough, they're going to convince these other people to believe in Jesus. And some people call that moodyism. It dates back to a guy named Finney, who was an evangelist, but he did a lot of gimmicks to move people to supposedly get saved. And, and Moody followed that. Sometimes it's called moodyism, but it's gimmicks. It's manipulating people, or at least that's the way some of us see it. So that's a difference in methodology. Another is a doctrinal difference. People can't work together. They differ on predestination. Things, big hot button issues, predestination, Israel, charismatic gifts, infant baptism. These are all been reasons people can no longer work together. Or number five, just some combination of all of the above. I guess that's the most common. But be that as it may, let's look how Paul deals with it. So I guess what we're looking at, what can we walk away from what Matthew read there is, how are we going to apply this? Well, one thing we can look at how Paul handles it. Okay, look what he says in verse one. That's interesting. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintichi, you can say it however you want to, to agree in the Lord. Notice he repeats the verb. Entreat, entreat. Each gets her own verb. And so what he's doing, he's, he's paying attention to each one individually, and he's, he's making them equal. Each, each gets her own appeal. You see how he does that? So it suggests he's got a high regard for both of them. He is not playing favorites right here, right? And also the Greek here is parakaleo. You heard of the paraclete. Uh, it means to encourage, to entreat, to urge. It's not a command. It's a present indicative. He's just talking to them wanting them to do this. And he says, I want you to agree. What's the sphere? Look at verse one. What's the sphere of their agreement? How? In the Lord. Okay. So in first Corinthians chapter two, verse 16, it says, it makes this declaration. We have the mind of Christ. That's what it says. Now, if you think about it, if each of these ladies had the mind of Christ, they'd have the same mind and they wouldn't be disagreeing with each other. <laughs> Okay, so they need to find their agreement in 
the Lord. And, and the reason this is important is evidently this is just not a petty quarrel. Because you see, Paul goes on to say, these women labored side by side with me in the gospel. So evidently this is a disagreement that's high enough it's hindering the gospel going on. Make sense? So there's probably always going to be people disagree with you. Some people don't like the way Jason does evangelism. Some people, I'm sure, don't like the way Matthew does evangelism. If he hangs around here long enough, some of us won't like the way Zoe does evangelism. Some of you don't like the way we do the Great Exchange College campus evangelism. We're going to have differences. But if those differences get so great that we start to hinder each other and our ability to proclaim the gospel, well, now that's a problem, right? All right. So, again, there's a lot of appeals like this, but 1 Corinthians one ten, Paul says, I appeal to you, my brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, I think you can have unity without uniformity. Amen. Right. I read a, where Lord Nelson, the big British admiral, came on deck from below decks and two of his officers were quarreling with each other. And he says, gentlemen, the enemy is there. <laughs> he pointed to the French fleet. In other words, quit fighting with each other. The enemy's out there. And what Satan would love to do is divide us and get us shooting at each other. And that hurts our witness and it hurts the spread of the gospel. All right. So first thing you notice what Paul did, he's very gentle with these women. He doesn't command. He appeals. He treats them as equals. And then whose help does he enlist in verse three? Well, he says, I ask you also, true companion. Now, the Greek word here is sigigus, sigigus. They don't know if that's a name, but I think not. Would you name your kid sigigus? <laughs> All right. But it could just be everybody knew who he was. So he's not named. They've never found a name like that anywhere else. Uh, some people think it's Luke, who was Paul's traveling companion. He was there in Philippi when they started the church, and he left Philippi. But there's indicators in Act that then he left Paul and could be back in Philippi at the time this is written. I don't know who it was, but the point is, he calls on outside help for these two women. A mediator, a counselor. That's what he calls for. So uh, it seems like another principle of counseling is sometimes it's good to get outside help. Now you see this a lot when couples have differences and they can't work them out. It's so helpful to appeal to outside help. And it's the same in our church. So next time you have a spat with somebody, try to work it out. But if you can't work it out, get outside help. That's a principle we see here. Now, just as an advertisement, in case you didn't know it, Alan and Lucy on the back row are trained, certified counselors. They literally travel the world teaching pastors about counseling. So all of you who are messed up, make an appointment and go see them. They'll be glad to help. But this is what's happening here. Now, this obviously the help that Paul wants from this guy is help in getting these two women sorted out with each other, negotiating a ceasefire. And Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay. So thank you, Ellen and Lucy, for being peacemakers a lot of times. So we, we see this need for third-party intervention. 
So it looks like this true companion that he's calling on here, obviously, at least it's been my experience, if you're going to be an effective counselor, you've got to be accepted by both sides. I mean, that helps. Okay. The counselor himself needs to have infinite tact. That's where I get off the boat a lot of times. He needs to have a, approach him with a spirit of love. He needs to be thoroughly biblical in his understanding. Okay. And he's got to be spiritually mature. So that's what, that's the kind of person you want to look for if you're picking a counselor. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So the counselor obviously should be spiritually minded and gentle. That's the idea. So, look at this interesting. 2 Timothy 2.24, he's talking about church leaders, but it applies to any kind of a, of a mediator, any, any type of mediator. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. Where do you think that evil is coming from? The people you're trying to talk to, they'll turn on you in a second. And what's the last thing he says? Oh, correcting his opponents. Okay, just principle here with great gentleness. So that's all. Part of the qualifications for being effective counselors. And so some of you guys are fighting and you need some help. Other ones, God might use you to help some warring factions get peace. That's it. So be open to that possibility. All right. Now, last time I checked, it does take two people to argue. Okay. And so uh, I heard uh, Chris in there arguing. I came up here to do some work and he was in there alone arguing with himself in the bedroom. All right. So, but if least, look, if, if at least one of the two people has a biblical attitude, it helps a lot. Okay. It helps a lot. And so uh, that's why Paul said uh, in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay. And here's an interesting one in 1 Corinthians 6, you know, they were suing each other, the Christians, and taking each other to court, secular court. Paul was really condemning that. And he asked this question. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? He's saying, let it go. Sometimes it's wrong to be right. How about that? If somebody's in a fight, has got that attitude, it sure does go a long way to diffuse things. Okay? So, First uh, Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Right? So if you can diffuse the fight before it gets started, that's good. Now let's go back to these two women in verse 3. Tell me what's remarkable about their ministry, according to verse 3. What's remarkable about it? Yeah, they had joined with Paul side by side in the work of the gospel. All right? And... Then he says, and their names are in the book of life. Okay, so he esteemed these two women and their ministries very highly. And this word labored in verse three is used outside the Bible of gladiators fighting side by side in the arena. And that's how he described the value of these women in their ministry, co-laboring with Paul and Philippians uses the same word in chapter 1, verse 27. It says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ 
so that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. That word striving is that same word about the gladiators in the arena. Side by side with the gospel. All right. So the question is, all you he men, women haters out there, exactly what did it look like for these women to be striving side by side with Paul in the gospel? Now, I don't expect you to answer that right now, but let me just suggest to you, surely they were doing more than baking bagels. Okay, these women were active in ministry in the church. Now, there's a tremendous ministry women have in the home. And you can read like in uh, the pastoral epistles about certain women, widows that were to be supported by the church. And you look at their accomplishments and it was about their domestic duties, their faithfulness, their hospitality, washing the saints feet. So any any lady, you got a family, you're married. That's a very important ministry. Don't denigrate that in any way. These two ladies were doing more than that. Maybe they never had married. Maybe their family children were grown. They were free to do things outside the home. And so I don't want to gloss over that. After we take what Paul said here apart, if we have time, I want to come back to what kinds of things we see women doing in ministry in the New Testament. Okay, but now I think Chris back there mentioned a guy named Clement. You might have heard of there's a famous guy in church history called Clement of Rome. Well, this is Clement of Philippi. It's not the same guy if you ever heard of him. But from a literary perspective, what did Paul accomplish by introducing Clement into this? Why was his name invoked? Okay, look at verse three again. Yes, I ask you also, a true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Now, why does Clement get into this? Man, it's like they're in league with Clement. Elevates. It's elevates them. Yeah. And Paul. Now, maybe true companion. Maybe he didn't know the two women that well. Maybe this is to commend the women to true companion. But uh, obviously this name Clement carries a lot of weight with these guys. So it this adds credibility to the effectiveness of their gospel work that these women were doing. I mean, these women were. They were doing something. That's a big deal. So, and then he praises them publicly, as, as you know, we just read in verse 3. Why was there a need to do that? Everybody already knew him. So why does he praise them publicly? Because he he'd also called them out publicly. That's right. <laughs> that's it. Now, I think that's the main reason. But also, if by some chance, true companion doesn't know them, boy, he's just given them the credentials. In other words, hey, it's worth your time and trouble to help these women because they are very valuable to the kingdom. So it's incentive to go the extra mile in helping them. Okay, it also reaffirms his appreciation for them. He really does appreciate what they had done. Okay, now let's talk about the book of life. That's where their names are written. What is the book of life? It's an eternal book, and it's a book of eternal life. So it's an eternal book of eternal life. Okay, that's who's going to heaven. That's who's who of, of who's saved. So now you read about this in various places in the Bible. It starts off in the Old Testament. There's a lot of references to it. But just to pick some New Testament examples, 
Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Evidently in that book. Revelation says all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Now, that's a bad thing. All whose names have not been written in the book of life belonging to the Lamb. And from Revelation, again, chapter 20, it says, I, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Now, books. So you got different sets of books. So these are books, plural. Okay, books were opened. And then another book was opened. So you got books and you got another book. Make sense? So we got at least three books. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books. So this is called the books of works. All right. So everybody that doesn't trust in Jesus, when he gets before the great white throne, he's going to be judged by the things he did, good or bad, out of the book of works. And I would just like to add, I wouldn't trust the best five minutes I ever lived to get me into heaven. And I hope you wouldn't either. Now, so they were judged according to what they had done. If, and then he says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. So that's what Eric said. It's the book of who's going to wind up in heaven. Revelation 21 says, he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Nothing impure will ever enter it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right. There's a little village in France, the name I can't pronounce, that was long exempted from national taxes. And in the tax record for that city, it had said in French, not in English, taxes remitted for the maiden's sake. And being a Catholic country, you think, is that Mary? No, but it's a reference to Joan of Arc. This is the city she was born in. And you might recall she was one of the ones who helped repel an English invasion of France. And so because she was born there in recognition for her service to the country, King Charles VII decreed that that little city would be exempt from national taxes in perpetuity. Well, similarly, on your page, in the Lamb's Book of Life, it could say sins remitted for the Lamb's sake instead of taxes remitted for the maiden's sake. Well, see, that's it. You want the blood of Jesus on you and what he did, not what you do. So this is the book you want to be in. So how do you get your name in this book? Well, let's change that. How can you tell if your name is in that book? That's a better question. How can you tell whether or not? Yeah. If you believe in Jesus, your name's here. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, but he'd been talking about how do you know it? It's, you believe, but it's a belief that changes you, gives you love for the brethren. Right. We talked about all that before, but that's how anybody who believes in Jesus truly believes. That's how, you know, if your name is in the book, you're eventually going to believe in Jesus before you die. All right. Now, it's possible that the next two sentences are also written to these women. There's a paragraph break here and maybe not, but. What's weird about this, what we just read, is in the middle of this book, he's got this very personal exhortation to these women. Now, he could have written to them privately. 
He could have had a separate note, you know, but he put it in there. All right. So anyhow, here it is. And and a lot of a lot of <clears throat> teaching things, uh, they'll start with verse four and ig- ignore the first two, three verses here. But I think maybe verse four might be related to these women. So let's pretend that it is. Let's pretend. Let's assume that four and five are actually related to this quarrel. OK, if it is, he's given a positive step toward reconciliation. All right. So look at look at verse four and five. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. If that's written to these two women, what what's the positive step that Paul recommends? What do they need to do? They need to rejoice in the Lord. That's like a green in the Lord. And you remember he entreated twice. I entreat you. I treat you. Look, he said, how many times did he say you need to rejoice? Twice, one for each of them. <laughs> rejoice, rejoice. So uh, anyway, uh, and what does always mean? At all times and all ways and included whatever they were arguing about, fussing about. Now, again, we're going to disagree with each other. But if it's in the Lord and you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're not going to get so ripped out of socket. Somebody disagrees with you. OK, now. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Remember, well, what was already known to everyone was their spat. But he wants them to reconcile. So now let everyone know of your reasonableness. And the Greek here means a lot of things. It means mildness, gentleness, fairness. It's the opposite of unbridled anger. It's the opposite of being harsh, brutal, or self-expression. Reasonable. Interesting. Calvin said it meant that we are not easily angered when we are wronged or suffer inconveniences or injustice. Not easily angered. And there's a linguist, uh, Anglican guy named R.C. Trench, and he said this word has the nuance of leniency, of not being so overly strict that we demand, demand our pound of flesh, even if it is our due. So this reasonableness sounds like a lot like one of the fruits of the Spirit, doesn't it? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, if, if that's you, it's going to be a lot harder to have a spat with somebody. It can still happen. It's going to be harder. All right. So he's saying that we as God's people, we need to agree in the Lord. We need to rejoice in the Lord. We need to... We should be known for our reasonableness as a people, if you're mature. All right. So let's look back at the so what. What principles of conflict resolution can we pull out of this today? You're going to have a fight with somebody. Maybe you're already sitting here fuming right now. All right. So principles of conflict resolution based on this. Somebody say something. Agree in the Lord. Okay. Then what is that going to look like to agree in the Lord? What does that mean? Okay, and it should be based on Scripture. Remember the Word and your great ideas and your mind. It's got to be based on Scripture, doesn't it? Agree in the Lord. And that's close to rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, not getting your way, but in the things of God. Yeah, okay, so got to have the mindset of agreeing in the Lord. What else can we pull out of this as a step in conflict resolution? That's right. When you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're thinking more about Him than your rights and what He's done to you. When I was in seminary, one of my professors was, uh, his ministry was revitalizing troubled churches. And he said that. He said, if, if you can get them evangelizing the common goal, 
these, these problems you're fighting about become less and less and less important, and, it, and it, it tends to resolve itself. So, yeah, the common goal. It's like Lord Nelson. The enemy is the French fleet out there, not each other. That's right. All right? You might need a mediator. You might need a mediator. That's right. It's okay to need a mediator. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. That's right. You get an impasse sometimes. That's right. So don't, don't be hesitant to call one. Yes, sir, Lee. Oh, yeah. So that's right. And remember the other person's good qualities and the ministry they've had, and what's God done in their lives. And we are a team. That's right. Amen. That's good. Notice sometimes it needs to go public. That takes that kind of pressure sometimes, maybe. Yeah. I've heard enough about all the squabbles and fights and complaints over the years. I know it happens and it's going to happen and it is happening. So this is the attitude to have right here. All right. So. Are you at odds? Don't answer this. Are you at odds with anybody else in this church? You need to work on resolving it. Most people just change churches over and over and again. That's what I said at the beginning. They just change churches. Well, that's not the solution. It's hard work to get things resolved, but that's what the Lord wants us to do. All right. Secondary application, I would ask, is based on this example of these women. Are you involved in the work of spreading the gospel? We can all do that. We all have different spiritual gifts, but some, we're all called to be witnesses. So how are you involved in spreading the gospel? Do you ever think strategically about how God might use you to spread the gospel? That's something to think about. We, be like these women. Right? We are on the same team. You just get off the bench and get out on the field and start playing. All right. You know, uh, there's a big controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention right now because... Rick Warren, I didn't even know he was Southern Baptist, but he is. And they ordained women pastors in the church. So that seems to be directly against uh, the Baptist faith and message that we're supposed to all have agreed to go by. And so in our church, I don't think there's any temptation of making a, a lady a pastor. That's not our problem. But if we have a problem, it's probably going to be limiting women too much. I think we would suffer from the opposite extreme. So I wanted to take a second and look at, we don't know exactly what these two women were doing. It's pretty important. But there are some other things they did. And so I just want to blow your mind a little bit if I can. But it does say, let me just start by saying, Scripture says women shouldn't teach or have authority over men in the church. Well, that's why women aren't pastors. That's a big deal as being a pastor is teaching and having authority. And so that's why women can't serve as a pastor, you've got differing roles of ministry for men and women. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 says, An overseer, that's the same thing as pastor, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, not the wife of one husband. So again, they're men. And by the way, when Paul says women shouldn't teach or have authority over man, you know what reason he gives? For Adam was formed first and then Eve. It's got nothing to do with the culture in Ephesus. He goes all the way back to creation. So as long as it's true historically that Adam was formed first and then Eve, the application of that is women shouldn't teach or have authority over men. All right. And then, as you we've talked about and we need to talk about again, this is talking about a church meeting and it means something. As in all the churches of the saints, women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything that they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, it's hard to imagine a woman serving as a pastor when she can't speak in the church meeting. 
or, well, or whatever that means. There's, there's something women are not supposed to do that the men could still do. Now, uh, Gerald and I are of the persuasion that he, what he's talking about is, when you look at the context, silence with respect to judging prophecy, which is a form of taking authority and making a pronouncement about a public prophecy that was given. I think that's what he's talking about. But anyhow, you see different ministry roles. So that said, though, I would argue that a man can do, a woman can do anything a man can do in ministry unless it's prohibited by Scripture. All right. So it's like the sky's the limit, except for these few areas we've discussed. So who can name another well-known woman in Philippi who was active in ministry besides these two gals? Lydia. Lydia, that's right. A successful, wealthy, accomplished businesswoman had her own Roman villa, household servants, okay? She gets saved and it appears that she hosted the church meeting in Philippi. Now, that's a little bit of an inference, but it, Scripture says after she was baptized and her household as well, she it looks like she's not married. Uh, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. That's at the start of the episode. At the end of it, after Paul's out of prison, times passed, it says they left prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So it has been speculated that because she owned this big Roman villa, it was a great place for the church to meet, that she probably hosted the church. That does not make her the pastor of the church just because she hosted the church. That's a leap. The feminists make this too far. But it was a blessing to the church, her hospitality. And that's a good thing. Now, I want to bring next to the witness stand Mary, Susanna and many others. Did you know that it wasn't just Jesus and the 12 wandering around? Okay, get this. Jesus went through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women, Mary and Joanna and Susanna and many others. And the word many others is feminine plural. All right. And what did they do? It said who provided for them out of their means. They gave to support the mission of Jesus and the Twelve. Now, by the way, Jesus never hesitated to go against society, custom, or religious tradition when it violated what God wanted to be done. And the fact that you had to, despite all these godly women, he only picked men to be disciples, apostles. You see that? That says a lot. And the woman at the well, remember? Basically, she gets saved, but it says the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, that's masculine, plural, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And many, that's masculine, plural, Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So I infer from that women can be evangelists. Women can tell men the gospel. All right. Junia, who knows who she was? Where is she mentioned? Okay, looks like they think she was from the church in Corinth. She carried the letter to Rome. That's what they speculate. If I got that right, yeah. But I deleted it. No, wait, that's not the one. I'm thinking about Phoebe. Scratch what I just said. Let's go back to Junia. Yes, Junia is in Rome. 
they're not even sure this is a woman. A lot of these names, they know it's a name, okay? But a lot of these names, if, unless they find it somewhere else outside the Bible at the first century, they're not sure if it's a male name or a woman name. So they don't know. But he says, greet Andronicus and Junia, well known to the apostles. So assuming that's a woman, whatever her service was, it had risen to the point that all the apostles had taken note of her. That's a big deal. That's like if Brother Allen back there, and I'm just speaking out of ignorance, Allen, it might be true, but if, if, uh, if David Platt and, and Charles Stanley and John MacArthur all know about Allen and Lucy's ministry, wow, well, he must really have been doing something. You see, never heard of me. But so, so, so for, for this woman to have had such a ministry that all the apostles, oh, yeah, we've heard of her. She's doing something, right? Okay, now Phoebe is the one I was thinking about before. Now, she was from the church in Rome. Looks like she might have carried the letter to the Romans. And so, therefore, Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church. Now, servant can be translated deacon, deaconess, okay? And he says, welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of myself and others as well. Now, what's a patron? Yeah, a patron of the arts. Yeah, that's right. Gives money. So she's giving money to support Paul, but she's traveling around, which is an unusual thing back then. It's not easy to travel around. But now the fact that she's called a servant of the church, the word diakonos is used 30 times in the New Testament. And of those 30 times, it only refers to the official office of deacon three. Odds are good she was not a deaconess. She was just a servant of the church. But I don't know that it would be unscriptural to have a woman deaconess. And you can argue that from the text of the qualifications. But all that said, it would be wrong in a typical Baptist church. In a typical Baptist church, it's not set up biblically. They have one pastor and a board of deacons who act like elders. And the problem is they're not qualified to be elders. They're qualified to be deacons. And so in a Baptist church, typically, if you make a woman a deacon, you've really just made her an elder. And that's a violation of Scripture. But if you go by the biblical model where deacons aren't elders, then, yeah, that's okay to have a woman serving other women in the church. That could be a good thing. So anyway, be that as it may. Priscilla. Now, that was Elvis Presley's wife. (laughs) Also wife of somebody named Aquila. All right. Now, they had a tent making business. They gave Paul a job making tents. Y'all remember that? And they lived a bunch of different places. I guess it was cheaper to move than to pay rent. And they hosted a number of house churches where they lived. So they're very hospitable. But I want you to show you something they did. It it says this guy named Apollos was an evangelist. And he knew, it said he was mighty in the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. And he, he was saved, but he still had a lot to learn. And so he said, Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, if you get pulled over by a traffic cop for speeding, do you explain to him why you were speeding or do you teach him why you were speeding? What's the difference? Authority, position, attitude. If you're late for work, your boss says, why were you late for work? Same thing. Do you explain why you were late or do you teach him why you're late? You see? All right. So there's nothing. Look, a lot of women are far more intelligent than a lot of men. A lot of women are far more spiritual than a lot of men. 
And a lot of women know the Bible a whole lot better than a lot of men. And there's nothing wrong with a man learning from a woman. My mother was a woman. I learned a lot from her. <laughs> right? Remember, Timothy learned from his mother and his grandmother. Remember that? Good things. But, but even a grown man... See, now they didn't slam dunk him in public, old Paulus. They took him aside, probably to their house. And the couple explained to him some gaps in his knowledge. So that's not the same thing as being a teacher of the church in the church to men. But you see, we don't want to unnecessarily limit what women can do. By the way, in the New Testament, we see women were prophets. And Acts chapter 2 Verse 17, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters. They shall prophesy even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And then Luke records about a woman named Anna, a prophetess, a widow. It says she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him, Jesus, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Okay, she had a public ministry to men and women. Acts chapter 21, Philip the evangelist had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And you might remember, for example, remember Huldah in the Old Testament. She was a prophetess. King wanted to know something. What did he do? He sent some men to inquire of her about the Lord's will. And she told him, did he learn something he didn't know? Uh-huh. Can men learn from women? Uh-huh. Can women be prophets? Well, they couldn't in the first century. I don't even know what it is. They might not even exist today, but whatever it was, they were doing it. I do know prophecy and teaching are two different gifts. And I do know it ain't preaching. You know, all the fundamentalist Baptist King James only verses churches say, that's preaching. Prophecy ain't preaching. That's not the same thing. So whatever it was, they were doing it, and it was okay. And I would argue they were doing it in church meetings because it said they can do it if their heads were covered. All right? And then also, what you see in the New Testament is missionary couples. Some of the apostles were married. They weren't all like Paul, and their wives traveled with them. Well, what do you think they did? I expect they were co-laboring with their husbands, just like these two women in Philippi were. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul says, Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles. So it's not quite the same thing, but when we were in California, at least she went with me, which is the first time she's done that to these conferences. And so we were working the booth together and bunches of men would come over. Oh, I couldn't talk to all of them. So she's talking to them equal with me. She wasn't teaching them. Boy, she was co-laboring with me. It was really helpful when all the Chinese men came over. Man, they started ripping off in Chinese. I never dreamed how many Chinese Southern Baptists there are. That was, that was cool. All right. Now, get this. Paul says it's better to be single than to be married. Some days I'm going to do a, a marriage seminar. You know what Paul's attitude of marriage is? If you marry, you have not sinned. Wow. So upholding signalness, he says this to women and unmarried Woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I say this, in other words, you ought to be single, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Those women were doing stuff just like Phoebe and 
Sintitia. Or Sintitia, whatever her name is. All right. So my conclusion is, this was the add-on to the lesson. Uh, believing women play a vital role in the ministry, in ministry, in the body of Christ. Amen. Okay? And we would be severely crippled without them. So their input, their contributions should be publicly recognized, just like Paul did these two women. And so I would say, in general, a ministry, a woman can have any ministry a man does, except what we've already delineated, being a pastor, teaching men, judging prophecy. Now, considering the culture of the day, I would imagine that the ministry of these two women was probably more focused on other women because their culture is even more restrictive than Scripture is. But in any event, however it worked out, they were co-laboring with Paul, the apostle, and Clement, whoever he was. Okay, so today, you know, in our church, some women like Hannah will go and do sidewalk counseling outside a, a clinic. Okay, it's dangerous work. It's an important work. We've got uh, Aretta would go to the crisis pregnancy centers and do crisis pregnancy counseling. Okay, we have a lot of women that come with us to the Great Exchange and do one-on-one sidewalk evangelism. All right, so a lot of women in evangelistic meetings, will share their gospel testimonies, just like the woman at the well did, right? So I'm, I'm just talking, giving financial support to evangelists, as we've seen, is a, a very important ministry. Hospitality, opening your home to the gospel. When we were having a ministry to the Chinese scholars, so many women would open their homes monthly for the scholars to come over and make a big dinner and create a situation where the gospel could be discussed and presented. All those are valid ministries. Serving as missionaries. You know, missionary is equivalent of an apostle, I mean, roughly speaking. And you had apostolic couples in the New Testament. You got missionary couples today. Even single women as missionaries. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.